Well, it's with a great sense of joy I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read here in a moment some select verses throughout the chapter to give you a feel for the chapter as a whole, which is all about resurrection. Then pray for God's mercy as we study His Word together. But I invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of the perfect and precious words of our God. Stand knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to pick up at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Verses 12 and 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Down in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Down in verse 23, I mean uh, 32 rather. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Down in verse 47, which begins our text for today. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this 
day in which we remember the resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us today, that you would open our eyes to see with greater clarity than ever before the wonder and the power of resurrection. That you would help us to see with greater clarity than ever before how the resurrection is to transform our lives every single day. Oh Lord, we hope in the name of Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And in His name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. The other day I was at one of my oldest, not one of my oldest daughters, I was at my oldest daughter's college tennis match watching them compete. And uh, as I was standing there, I was standing there talking to uh, her friend, uh, Montrell, and we were standing there still uh, discussing what was going on. And I was standing still there for probably about 45 minutes. And all of a sudden, a ball was hit off the court, and it was really close to me. And so I just was going to catch the ball and toss it back. And and so when I went to reach out to, to step toward the ball, I reached out with my hands, but my legs did not work. You see, if I stand in one place for very long, my legs get so stiff that I have to slowly get them working again. And I thought, and you were an athlete. What in the world has become of you? And, and, and I was like, Come on. I mean, this body is just not what it used to be, that's for sure. And by the way, the title of the sermon, Let Nothing Move You, that's not what it's talking about. (laughs) And I was just sort of beat down about the moment. My brain still knows what to do and the body cannot execute it. And when it happened, I actually thought of this text. And it brought me hope. Now, that may seem weird to you. Something as minor and insignificant as that. I hope it's not weird to you by the end of this message. It brought me very real hope. For what is promised here has something to do with everything in our lives. Including decrepit bodies like mine. And there is hope to be found there. That's how practical this text is, this message is. Now, don't get lost in the the lyrical type, uh, elevated type language. Yes, that is there. but, But in the heart of this, there's the most practical thing that you and I could ever hear. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, this begins with the, the, the gospel and the, the fact of the resurrection. And, and he talks about the, the eyewitnesses, uh, 500 at one time, and all of these other people who are still alive. And if you don't believe, go ask them. One of the great attested facts in the ancient world, the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. And that people saw Him alive afterwards 
Then he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 and, and following to, to work out the logic, the wisdom, the, the consequences of the reality of resurrection. And very simply, it makes this case, if the resurrection did not happen, all of the rest of this is nothing. But the resurrection did happen. And that changes everything. Let me say something very clearly today. There is no Christian faith if you reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I say resurrection, I don't mean it's a metaphor for how things are always changing and there's newness. No, Jesus Christ, the God-man, was dead and buried. And He came alive at a point in time. And He rose from the dead. That's what I mean. Christianity is bound up in this promise of resurrection. But, but then in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 and following, he goes on from, from proving Christ's resurrection to pressing its implications on all those who say that they are in Christ. He goes from arguing about the fact of Christ's resurrection to pointing out the reason that it matters for His people every single day. And embedded in the middle of the book, there's the mention of something really important. It calls Christ, in verse 20 and verse 23, the first fruits. His resurrection is the first fruits. You see, it ties the resurrection of Christ to the resurrection of believers... At the end, when the dead in Christ shall rise. The Bible portrays this not as two events, but as two aspects of one event. The harvest would come and, and the first fruits offering would be brought in. And that, that what was brought in did not just represent what was there, it represented the totality of the harvest. And so the promise here in this great chapter on resurrection has to do with the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of all who are in Christ. And a resurrection as His, a literal bodily resurrection for all who are in Christ. We are to be seen as a people of the resurrection. A people who are spiritually raised by faith here and now and a people who await that glorious day of bodily resurrection. Well, body and spirit will be reunited forever and ever in a new heavens and a new earth. Now to do this, he explains it in relation to the whole story. All of human history. His point is, in going back here to the creation account, and carrying us forward to Christ's return and the resurrection of believers is to say that, that the whole story, all of human history, hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I want us to see, first of all, is found in verses 47 through 50. It's the beginning and the new beginning. Verse 47. The first Adam was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of 
heaven. Now, this first man, it's ident- he's identified in uh, chapter 15, verse 45, as Adam. This takes us back to the very beginning, God's initial creation of his image bearers. God created Adam and Eve in his own image to, to rule the world under his authority, and yet there was a fall into sin. And it points out that that Adam, that first Adam, was from the earth. His source, his, his essence was from the earth. He was a man of dust. You remember Genesis 2-7? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then it goes on in Genesis 3.19. Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God creates humanity from the dust and becomes a living being as he breathes the breath of life into it, a body with a soul. This man of dust, Adam, fell into sin. He listened to the voice of the evil one in the garden that said, has God really said and questioned the voice of God. And so sin and rebellion came into the world. And when it talks about here in verse 47, the second man that speaks of his is from heaven, whose origin is heaven, whose essence is heavenly. In verse 45, it calls him the last Adam, not the second Adam. You see, the key to all of this is all of humanity is being seen through the lens of two representative heads, Adam and the last Adam. Adam, a created being from the dust who was breathed life into body and soul. And the last Adam, Jesus, the Christ, the one who was from heaven. That's the picture being painted here. Don't get lost in all of the other stuff. This, these are representative heads of a people. Look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, in the context of, of this chapter on resurrection, it's talking about those who are in Christ, who have put their faith in the one who is the resurrected Messiah, the crucified and resurrected Messiah, and those who have not. There are those who are identified with humanity apart from Christ, fallen humanity, sinful humanity, and those who are identified with the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, the one that God sent to rescue a people. And it says, so also are those who are of dust. See, Adam is a, a pattern, a type, and, and all who are in him are of the same nature. So he goes back to the very beginning. And what is the end result of that nature? That, 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 that what happens to a created being in a fallen world when there is sin in the world? Ultimately, there is death, destruction, decay. The body gives out. The end result of being in Adam is death. The end result of being in Christ, in the man of heaven, is eternal life, an eternal kingdom. Having, like him, a resurrection body. A a body that is both physical and spiritual. 
Not just body and soul like we see with Adam, there is a transformation that comes at resurrection. So we find out that Jesus, after he was resurrected, had flesh and bones, and he ate meals with people. He was there with them, and yet his body had qualities that he could appear in a room that was locked. A resurrected body marked by physical and spiritual. But I want you to see it and not miss it. See, the Bible very simply at this point explains the reality and situation that we are all in. We are either identified with Adam, the first man, the one who was from the earth, a man of dust. We are the just as, and we can fill in the issue about Adam, or we are identified in Jesus, the the last Adam, the one from heaven, a man of heaven, and we can do the just as in relation to him. And the, the, the difference between those two is whether or not we have put our faith in Christ, the gospel promise. You see, when it talks about Adam and the fall into sin in Genesis 3.15, it immediately gives a promise of how this can be reversed, uh, how we can be forgiven. It's a gospel promise that there will be a seed born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent, the one who questioned the purposes of God. And in defeating the evil one, and in living a perfect life for his people, and in dying a death to pay the penalties for their sins, being raised from the dead that they might receive his righteousness and be justified, there is a way to be identified not with the first Adam, but the last Adam. Everybody is in this category at one time, but by God's grace and his plan and his purposes, there are people, Paul says in Colossians, Colossians who are being taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of God's Son in love. Everybody finds themselves in those categories. You see, Adam, the first man, there was creation, then there was man, and there was the fall. Now God sends the last Adam, Christ, the Messiah, And he is the righteous one who is the perfect man. And he brings a new creation. Do you see what's happening there? It is a reversal. Creation, man, fall. Now we don't start with creation. We send the man who is righteous, who ushers in a new creation. That's what we need. Our only hope is the inbreaking of God in this world with something beyond this world. And that's what we have in Jesus the Christ. That's what is testified to as he shows power over even death itself. Power over sin, power over the devil, power over death itself. It's the inbreaking of God, the, the reversal. Death is a natural consequence in a fallen world, a, a disintegration, a, a coming apart. But the inbreaking that we need is from another world and it brings eternity. So God invades this fallen world with the glories of heaven. All humanity rightly viewed through the lens of a representative head, and there are only two. Now, I know somebody may be here and say, well, 
I mean, I, I don't identify with Adam. I, I, I identify with myself and nobody else can. You can't say somebody else is, is my head. And how can you say that, that, that I identify with Adam and that you can count me guilty because of what Adam did? Hmm. Pretty easy. What do we know Adam for? He sinned and rebelled against God. So if you have never sinned, you have a worthy protest. If you have sinned, yeah, Adam is your representative head. Do you see that? We've we got some, two people here, and, and they've both stolen goods. And I say, you know, uh, this guy's just like the other guy. And the guy says, no, he doesn't represent me. What do you mean? I say, well, you're both people who have stolen. Well, yeah, but he doesn't represent me. Oh, yes, he does. You see, the only way you and I can rightly protest is if we haven't followed Adam in sin. If we have, then he's a good representative for us. And like I remind us again and again, it's not only that we haven't lived it up to God's standards, you and I don't even live up to our own standards. Nobody believes that they are without sin. The only question is, what are you going to do with the fact that you have sin? How are you going to deal with your sin problem? The Bible says there's only one way to deal with it. You can't deal with it because you're the sinner. You can't look around and say somebody else will deal with it for me because they're the sinners. What you need is someone without sin who's willing to pay the penalty of what you deserve. You see, in Christ, the believer is not only earthly, earthy, but in Christ, the believer is also heavenly. In Christ, and one day we will be raised with Christ and have a spiritual body like His, like His resurrected body. Here's how he sums it up in verse 50. I tell you this, the, the word it means declare, it's, it's forceful here. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, when he says here, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not talking about physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's the opposite of what he's saying in the whole. Christ literally bodily and physically raised from the dead. The physical body, though, has to be transformed. There is a sameness to it and a uniqueness to it. It has to be made fit for heaven. When he says flesh and blood, he's talking about the, the Adam imaging body that we have, the, 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 the earthly, the fallen, the, the, the perishable body that we have is what he says here. And that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. No, there has to be by God's grace. Union with Christ. There has to be the sanctifying grace of God and ultimately the work of God that makes us fit for heaven and ultimately the resurrection of the dead when we too receive a resurrected body. The beginning and the new beginning. All of us have to deal with that. But he also explains it in terms of the story and the mystery when will this happen? When will we receive resurrected bodies for those who are in Christ? Those who are identified by the representative head of the Lord Jesus, who, who believe 
that forgiveness is in Him. That He is the one whose righteousness that we claim before God. The story and the mystery. Look with me beginning in verse 51. Behold, Spurgeon says this, is, this, this word here, behold, is a word of wonder. It, it calls, it, it, it's used when there's something that, that, that is coming up that, that ought to cause you to, to gasp. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, mystery here sometimes can be translated secret, but, but what it's saying here is, I'm going to tell you something that's not known just simply by reason. Something that's not known simply by the light of nature. Something that can only come by revelation. Something only God can reveal. And either it's something that has not been known before, or something that, that has been known, but not with the clarity in which it's about to be known. I tell you a mystery. In the story of what God is doing in the world, let me tell you something in this moment that's going to have clarity that, that has not been given before. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, euphemism for death, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. He includes himself here. The, the verb here is passive. It's a divine passive. It means God will change us. So, so there, are, there are those in this context who are saying, well, this talk about the resurrection of the dead, if, if you're alive when Christ returns, you won't experience the resurrection of the dead. So, so maybe you don't know. He say, listen, if you're alive at the time Christ returns and he gathers his people, your body will go through the same transformation as the dead in Christ who rise. Your body's not naturally fit for heaven. You don't have a body that's marked by the spiritual body that you will need. He says we will all be changed. Now, also we note this. We will be changed. Just as their body and the resurrection from the dead will not be obliterated, but rather it will have a newness to it, neither will our bodies be obliterated. Understand this. Don't deny the physicalness of resurrection. God cares about us and all of us. Ancient heresy of Gnosticism says material is bad, physical is bad, spiritual is good. God never ever tethered, separates these things like this. So when somebody stands at the casket in a funeral and says, you know, that's not Ted. Ted is with the Lord. Just shake your head and smile and go, stop it. That is Ted, and Ted is with the Lord, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But I've got news for you. God's got a plan for that body one day when the dead in Christ rise. Not exactly the same, but a reconstituted body, but a body nonetheless, a physical body that's also a spiritual body that possesses the qualities fit for a new heaven and a new earth. Now look at when this will happen in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I I love the rhythmicness of the way it's said there. It's better a a blinking. (laughs) Something that, that can happen so quickly. In the blinking of an eye, sudden, instant, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. The perishable body will be raised imperishable. And then it says it again in verse 22. And we shall be changed. 
changed by God, a spiritual body, transformed, fit for heaven, what will those bodies be able to do? I guess we'll be able to show up in locked rooms. We'll have flesh and bones like Jesus did. We'll be able to eat and drink, and yet it'll be a body like we have never known it before. This language of the last trumpet, the, the voice, the Jesus uses the same thing in Matthew 24, 31. Paul elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. John in the book of Revelation, Revelation 8, 2. But did you hear that phrase in verse 22? The dead will be raised. Glory. Wonder. It changes everything. It changes the way we view these bodies. It changes the way we view how we use our life. The dead will be raised. Imperishable, meaning not marked by corruption that we have known up until that point, the dead in Christ will be raised. Christ was raised. His people will be raised. He was the first fruit. Your resurrection in Christ is just as sure as the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 100% sure. It's a fact. Verse 53. For this perishable or corruptible body must put on, the word is clothed, must be clothed with the imperishable. And this mortal body, body that's capable of dying, deteriorating, must be clothed with immortality, that is freedom from dying. When the perishable is clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal is clothed with immortality. Now, I can't even hardly fathom the wonder and the glory of immortality, of having a body that is imperishable, of being with the risen Christ in a new heaven and new earth, free from the very presence of sin. I can't work all that out in my mind, but it's true, and everything within me longs for it. I always, uh, when I was younger, was so mortified by death. Really, I was carefree kind of kid. Not many things bothered me, but death freaked me out. Classmates who died when I was in high school, and I I wouldn't go to the funeral because I just, I knew I didn't have an answer for what was going on. So it was just easier to avoid it. You know, there are a few things more sobering than a funeral. Because one day, you won't be sitting out there looking on. There will be people sitting out there looking on at you. Are you ready for that moment? You might say, oh, this talk about Adam and last Adam and representatives and story and mystery being revealed and resurrected bodies. That that just doesn't sound like something I'm going to trust in. Well, what are you trusting in? What do you put in its place? How do you make sense of the world? Why is there sin? How do you deal with your sin problem? What is eternity? Most approaches to life are just some form of karma. Everything comes around and works out in the end. 
That ain't much. Have you ever met karma? Some of you say, well, yeah. No. Our hope is not in an impersonal force. It's in a person. If you reject Christianity, you aren't rejecting a force or a theory. You're walking away from the man of love who gave his life for sinners. A man who never did anything wrong, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and was raised that you and I might know justification. Now you may want to believe in an impersonal force. But do you really believe that's more compelling than the Christ? The unfolding of this mystery means that for those in Christ, we understand death and the death of death. Look with me at the second part of verse 54. Then shall come to pass the saying as it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Back in chapter 15, verse 26, it says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now here we have the promise that death is swallowed up in victory in light of the reality of resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, and the resurrection of those who are in Christ and in the the last times. This is a quotation here of Isaiah 25, verse 8. In Isaiah 25, verse 7, it says that death is a veil that is spread over all peoples. And in verse 25, verse 8, it gives a promise, He will swallow up death forever. And then it says, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, a promise that shows up again at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, verse 4. Death swallowed up in victory. Then verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is a a mocking, a taunting of death. Death is the great enemy. Death is the the weapon of the evil one, the, the one who tempted to sin. Sin leads to death. And now it is a mocking of it because of the reality of resurrection. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? This is a quotation of Hosea 13, 14, where it says, I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, the the realm of the dead, where is your sting? See, death is a reality. And death is an enemy. And death is a conqueror. And death is a destroyer. But for the one who is in Christ, it is only for a time. When the dead in Christ rise, it'll be full and final vindication that death is swallowed up in victory. It will be what can rightly be described as the death of death. The evil one cast away for all eternity. Tragically, with those who said, I'll do it on my own. I don't need the last Adam. I don't need the Christ. Death swallowed up in victory. I love the words of the poet George Herbert who said, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. An executioner. The end of the story. But oh no, because of the gospel. Because we know that the dead in Christ will rise. 
Death is just a gardener. You know, um, think about this language here. Oh, death, where is your sting? I think about uh, <clears throat> a parent and a child, a, a mother or, or a father, and, and they're working in the garden, and their small child is there, and, and, and their small child is, all of a sudden there is a, a bee there, and, and they're terrified, and they start screaming, and they're, they're running in terror, and they don't know what to do, and the parent comes, and the parent envelops the child, and, and all of a sudden the, 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 the child feels the, the parent tense up, Then the parent lets go, and the parent says, you are free to go about your business now. I took the sting. There is no sting left for you. That's what Christ has done. He took the sting of death. There is no sting left for those who are in Christ. Oh, death is a horrible thing, and Death is something that rightly, like Jesus, stood at the tomb of Lazarus, who he was about to raise, and yet he wept because there's death, because it is a fallen, sinful world, and death is an enemy. But death is an enemy that is defeated. And the resurrection of believers will be the final signal of the death of death for all time. Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, now the sting of death means is sin, meaning unforgiven sin. But we know in chapter 15, verse 3, Christ died for our sins. The, the, the power of sin is the law, not because the law is bad, it is good, it reflects the character of God. The, the power of sin is the law because we are bad. Not because the law is bad. And the law teaches us our guilt. And you know what it does apart from Christ, our natural tendency as we see our guilt? is to disobey all the more. You know the tendency, right? It says, do not cross this line. Right? You just, you just almost want to. You just, you just, the, the, the law draws you out and, and reminds all that nobody stands before the law of God. Nobody can honest lips say, I have fulfilled all of the Ten Commandments and what they represent. Nobody. The law draws us out. It, it shows us our guilt. It shows us that we have to de- receive judgment for the reality of our sin. And the sting of death is upon us apart from Christ. But verse 57, for those who are in Christ, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He has done it. He gives it. He is risen. He has declared victory over sin and death. Gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.4 Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. 1 Peter 2.22, we are made free from sin. Acts 2.24, He is the conqueror of death for us. Hebrews 9.28, He is the redeemer of His people. You ever walked out of a store and that thing starts going off like you've stolen something? Maybe you have. (laughs) I'm assuming most of you didn't really steal something. What do you do? Whip out the receipt. It's been paid. 
The resurrection is the receipt. So when Satan comes and says, oh, how can you even be a Christian? Do you know what you've done? Yeah, take it up with Jesus. You got a problem? Take it up with Jesus. Judy wrote an article not too long ago that has this beautiful line in it. She had gone home and she was at the church that she grew up in and they've got a cemetery right there. She's walking around with Annabeth and and the article says, but for Christians, a cemetery is also oddly a place of abounding hope. I, I don't have the same attitude toward death that I once had. Now, it grieves me, but I do understand it. And I do understand that every time you see a cemetery, you know that it is a testimony to the resurrection of Christ. Oddly, a place of abounding hope. And then verse 58, here's what he says. Therefore, this is where all of this has been headed. This is not some abstract theological discussion so you can impress people with your understanding of uh, federal headship and Adam last time. No, 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 no. This is the therefore. The resurrection in the end makes every difference here and now. That's the conclusion here. Therefore, look at it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, that is firm, seated, immovable, that's steady, not shaken. Let nothing move you. I love the way the NIV puts it. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, always excelling, doing more, overflowing in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, it's not empty, it's not futile, it's not wasted, it's not worthless. Do you see that wonderful balance there? Let nothing move you abound in labor. Let nothing move you of all of the things that try to draw you away from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your hope in the resurrection. Do not be moved. And because you will not be moved there, do everything you do abounding in the work of the Lord, doing it in His name and for His glory. You see, our lives in Christ, there is a connection between heaven and earth that that animates us, that liberates us just simply from the concerns of this world and compels our service in life here and now. The reality of resurrection in the end because of Christ's resurrection does not render us passive here and now. It liberates everything we do to understand that none of it is worthless in Christ's name. None of it. And so we can live life with this all-in attitude. We are not afraid of being hurt by the hurts of this world because we are ultimately comforted with the comfort of heaven. Do you see how that changes everything? Let nothing move you. Abound in labor. If it's a math equation, it equals nothing in vain. You know what everybody wants to live? A life of purpose? A life of meaning? A life that matters? See, you're called to think on this, to think on the resurrection. Not just understand it intellectually, but give yourself over to it, to, to, to walk in it, to, to daily have the resurrection be a part of your life. Here's what this means. Nothing in vain labor in the Lord. It means every act of love, every gratitude, every act of kindness, every work of art, every 
bit of music that is inspired by the glory of God, every song song, every delight in this created order, every minute spent teaching, every minute spent cooking and cleaning and building, and every act of care and nurture and every comfort and every support for someone else, another image bearer, every kid who is loved and served, every moment of delight in God's world for God's glory, every prayer, every teaching, every deed, every attempt to spread the gospel and to build up the church, every gospel conversation, every person greeted in Jesus' name, all of it will matter and it will matter for all eternity. You see, that's the contrast here. It is not in vain because it matters now and forever. Because you are in Christ. You will be raised in Christ. You see, the things that don't matter, the things that are vain, are the things that are just temporal and will be done away with. You see, that's the issue here. The person who lives apart from Christ cannot have the purpose. They aren't living according to the way they are created. But the resurrection comes in, and it gives us a promise that those who live this risen life by Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit are now liberated to enjoy every aspect of life to the glory of His name and know that in enjoying every aspect of His life, they are doing what matters for all eternity. See, when you and I are raised, we are raised. We are raised as a people who saw God's glory in a beautiful mountain and said, look at the greatness of God. We are people who are raised who saw expressions of what God does with His image bearers and says, that is amazing. We are people who enjoyed art and music and one another. You see what this does. This is why circumstances can't steal purpose and meaning from life. There are terrible circumstances in life. There are some people who are in prison unjustly, but they still have purpose and meaning. Why? Because their labor even there is not in vain, just as Paul's wasn't when he was unjustly in prison. You see, this ability of of no circumstance being able to steal your meaning and purpose is so powerful, but it also means this. It means that living for the applause of men is a denial of the resurrection. That's why Jesus says, if you do it for the applause of men, you received your reward in full. What if you do it for the glory of God and you don't care whether anybody sees it or not? Now you're living in light of resurrection. All those things matter. You see, here's the the issue. You know how liberating that is? The things that people applaud are often priorities that don't match God's. So if you live for the applause of men, you always get pulled in the direction of living in ways that don't align with how you should be living. But we're free from that. All of it matters. All of it. The reality of the resurrection speaks in our lives. Every single day, through every single moment, let nothing move you. Abound in labor, knowing that because of the resurrection, 
you have hope now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your perfect and precious word. I thank you for every person who is here today and the opportunity we've had to sing and to pray and to open your word. This matters because you matter. This coming together to worship was purchased by your shed blood and the empty tomb. If Christ was not risen, we would not be here. But Christ is risen and we are here. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that there would be an honest examination of our own hearts and minds as to to whether or not we can rightly be understood as being represented by Adam or the last Adam, Jesus. Whether we understand the, the mystery that all who are in Christ will be changed, will be raised, will be given a spiritual body. And Lord, I pray that you help us Help us to see and to understand what it means to live this therefore of the resurrection. And Lord, remind everyone here today there are only two ways to live. In Christ or every other way which just is a different form of serving yourself. Lord, help us to know the love and the beauty of Christ. Help us to know the sting removed, the one who brings the death of death. May we be found in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.